Good morning, everyone. Hi. It's great to see you uh, this morning. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Kate. Oh, I'm going the wrong way here. Hi, Blythe. Steph. Hi, Ray. You're the only one standing up, so hi. It's uh, so good to see you. This is, uh, we often call this Startup Sunday or uh, kind of Welcome Back to Church Sunday after, after the summer. So if, if there's some of you who have been gone a lot in the summer, welcome back. If some of you are brand new or you're with friends or family, welcome here. And if those of you who have been here a lot, good to see you as well. I want to really quickly comment actually on the scripture readings we just read, which uh, I hadn't looked ahead to what the, the lectionary readings were, and, and if you don't know, the lectionary is made up of three cycles, three yearly cycles, where we, it's, it's a way that the church has practiced of making sure we're reading scripture and the whole counsel of God, and, and we get most of the Bible, not all of it, but most of the Bible over those three years, and so it, there's always a kind of a roulette element to it, because you never know what's going to happen on a Sunday morning, and we came up on which... One of the passages, which I think is one of the worst in the Bible. I don't know if you can say that about Scripture, but um, I, I've had a hard time with this Scripture. Did you hear the Gospel reading? Jesus called a woman a dog. Did you notice that? Yeah, or did it just kind of, maybe we weren't all listening. But uh, he called a woman a dog, and I was reading about this passage. It's in Matthew's Gospel as well. Uh, it's a troubling text, and the, the person I was reading ask this question because one of the things that's hard to interpret uh, is we don't get tone and we don't get facial expressions. So we, we, we hear the words. And, and so I like this question. What if when Jesus called the Syrophoenician woman a dog, he does so with a twinkle in his eye? What if she knows and he knows that she knows? They're putting on a show for the, those watching playfully subverting social norms. And one of the things that the gospel writers are really keen to do is to, to show that in the life of Jesus, this is the first human who is overriding all of human uh, faithlessness with his faithfulness. And so Jesus walks the steps of Israel and, and walks in really our shoes and in our place is faithful in all the places that we're not. So when he's praying in the garden, uh, theologians will say, he took our fear of death on himself and went to the cross. He obeyed through it and he redeemed our human nature. Or in this story, perhaps Jesus here is taking our xenophobia and our misogyny He's taking it on himself, and he's overcoming it for us, showing us the new way to be human. I think those are some interesting ideas, and none of them were in my sermon. Okay, so let's, uh, we'll just park that for now. But I think this, this is an interesting thing to stumble on that passage this week when I was reading about it and have been struggling with it. And I think in sermons, you're supposed to have a little tidier ending than that, but you'll forgive me, hopefully. Okay. Uh, so again, so good to see you. I was reading this week of somebody writing about their experience of growing up in uh, church. And this isn't, of course, everyone's experience, but it, it may be a common one. And he's describing uh, growing up in church as uh, the image he used as growing up in a pond. 
a pond of beliefs and traditions, a pond where he said, we were at the center, certainly at the center of the pond, our particular denomination. I won't tell you what denomination uh, he's from, Um, but we're at the center, and then everyone else at best was on the edge of the pond, but mostly outside of the pond. And he said, so instead of teaching us to be curious, they taught us to critique. And instead of teaching us to learn from other people of faith, they taught us to protect ourselves from being led astray. And instead of helping us discern and sift the wheat from the chaff, they trained us to defend ourselves against anything that fell outside the circle, that was outside the pond. And Aaron Nyquist writes this, for years... I thought Christianity was fundamentally about three things, believing the correct things about God, saying a magic prayer to obtain eternal security, and not doing any of the fun things that your friends are doing. (laughs) And I I read this and I thought, oh man, what what a sad, tiny, boring vision. The pond. But of course, there's a difference between a pond in a river. Ezekiel 47 is this amazing passage of scripture where the prophet Ezekiel, who is writing in, uh, we think, around 6th century before Common Era, and he's part prophet and part performance artist. If you've read Ezekiel, you know it's a really wild book where Ezekiel is, embodies and acts out, uh, often very theatrically, Uh, these prophetic words from God for Israel as he's calling them back to faithfulness. So Ezekiel has this this vision that's recorded in in, uh, Ezekiel 47. And the vision is this. He's brought to the, the entrance of the temple and he sees water coming out from under the threshold of the temple. Water is pouring out of the temple. And Ezekiel then, he's led outside the city gate to discover that water is actually trickling outside, not only the temple, but the city. And he walks out of the city further, and he's accompanied by, the text says, this man who's leading Ezekiel. And this man begins to measure the water. He starts doing measurements, and he's measuring off a 1,000 cubits, which is about 500 kilometers. Nope, 500 meters. And uh, not that it would have mattered. I don't know if you would have known anyways, but 500, 500 meters rather. And then he's led into the water. And, and Ezekiel says, the water came up to my ankles. And then the man begins measuring again and measures another thousand cubits. And they go further and he says, the water came up to my knees. He measures again, another thousand cubits up to my waist, measures again. And then he says, this happened. He says, because now the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, there was a river that no one could cross. And then this this man says to Ezekiel, son of man, do you see this? Ezekiel gets out of the river, gets on the bank, and, and it's recorded what he sees. He sees that water is flowing, he says, toward the east. And it goes down into the Arabah and then down into the Dead Sea, which is, you may know, filled with salty water. And it moves that salty water out and fills it with fresh water. It says, he sees swarms of living creatures. It uh, said, they will live wherever the river flows. 
he sees fish of many kinds. And the text seems to emphasize this. There's a diversity here. Many kinds of fish. And he says he sees fruit trees of all kinds of fruit. And they're growing on their banks. And the text says their leaves do not wither. And every month they bear fruit. Can you imagine this? In the Okanagan, just every month, cherries and peaches. It says, where the river flows, everything will live. So this river gives life so much so that the fruit on the trees know only one season, and that is perpetual, ongoing fruitfulness, which at this point then raises the question, what kind of river is this? What kind of river does that to landscapes? I was just about to say something which I know Amy would mock me for if she was here, but I was going to say, lately I've been getting into rivers. Um, and <laughs> she always mocks me. She's like, why are you always getting into things? You've got to get into them. Just let them be. You don't have to get into stuff. Just let, so, whatever. I'm getting into rivers. I've, I'm, I've been intrigued by them in, in, a, new, in a new way. And, and this summer, one of my family's favorite spots is Lynn Canyon Headwaters. How many of you, you spend any time? You go in the river, Lynn, at the headwaters? How many of you know? Okay. Special spot. We love going down there. There's huge rocks. The dog's jumping around. Instead of a hot tub, you find a cold tub of water to sit in, and you relax. Um, you have some cold beverages, talking juice boxes and such, and, and you just relax there in the river. It's amazing. I've been getting into rivers. Curious to know what's the best river you've seen or you've been in? To, been in. Just let us know. What's, you got a favorite? Where's that? Amazing. Best swimming. Best swimming holes. Amazing. Where else? Sorry? The Vetter River. Oh, nice and local. Got some Chilliwack pride there. It's good. <laughs> Chilliwack River. Yeah. Good. I heard two at the same time. So I'm just going to say, yep. Great. So, so many amazing rivers. I've spent time this week looking at pictures of rivers, and I just want to do that with you for just for a few moments here, okay? Let's, this is stunning stuff. Look at this. Let's go a little slow. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slower, slower. Let's take this in. It's not it's it's about rivers still. Still about rivers. Rivers are glorious and they're dangerous. And of course, they're all over the world, and our cities line the big rivers and the small ones. Why? Because rivers are the lifeblood, or as our indigenous sisters and brothers remind us, water is life. Rivers give power and movement and transportation and refreshment and cleansing and irrigation and water. When's the last time you've really considered a river. 
What's interesting about this river in Ezekiel 47 is where it ultimately flows. Revelation 22, this is the last chapter in Scripture. This is where the story is going. Revelation 22, this time John records what he sees. He says this, The river of the water of life is clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God down the middle of the great street of the city. This is what he saw. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are there for the healing of the nations. So throughout history, there is a great, mighty river that flows toward the healing and the restoration of all things. And this is where the story goes, that love conquers death, that a new heaven and new earth are established, and that the God of love and justice finally puts all things to right. Creator is carrying every corner of creation into a beautiful future. This is as Ezekiel saw, that where the river flows, everything will live. And so when Jesus spoke of the river, he most often spoke of the kingdom of God. Sometimes he'd talk about streams of living water, but most often when Jesus talked about the river, he talked about the kingdom of God. And as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount over these last many months, we've looked at how important it is to see and to understand the Sermon on the Mount inside Jesus' announcement of the availability of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, the kingdom's on hand. And as we've, as we've looked often, almost every, every time, the kingdom of God is the realm where, where uh, things that God wants to happen, happen. Or on earth as it is in heaven, occurs. The kingdom, Jesus explained, is good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom for the oppressed, and God's favor on the earth, or as Martin Luther King Jr. taught, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. This is the river. This is the kingdom. This is where it's all flowing. And it's so important in this massively long introduction <laughs> to help us see. You didn't know it was the intro still. Yeah. Um, to see that Jesus didn't merely bring a sermon. He came with the kingdom. He came with the life and the power of the river, which is to say there is a massive difference between a pond and a river. What you imagine matters. So with the river in view then, I want to come to this final text in the Sermon on the Mount, and with the river in view of taking a big risk because I'm absolutely mixing metaphors here. Because we're coming to a text where Jesus is using a water metaphor. Uh, and he's using it in a negative way. And I want to use it in a positive way this morning. And Jesus is talking about foundations and structures and being rooted. And I want to talk about flowing. And so if it seems confusing, it's because it is. And I hope, hopefully it will get clear as we go. So just acknowledging, yes, that it is complete mi mixing of metaphors. But... I hope, it'll, I hope it'll make sense. So, let's hear the scripture together. This is how Jesus ends his most famous sermon, verse 24. If you want to go there, we can read with one, with one another. <clears throat> Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus finishes this beautiful, intense, very confronting sermon by basically saying this. In summary, do this. Do this stuff. This stuff isn't to be ignored or even admired. It's to be practiced. And whoever puts my teaching into practice will survive the storms of life. That's the key. The storms will come. It's not whoever puts these things into practice is guaranteed storm-free existence. It's often a a version of Christianity that sounds like that. It's not what Jesus is teaching. Storms will come. But the difference is practice this stuff if you really want to live. He's not primarily inviting you into correct beliefs, an internal destination, or behavior modification, but rather into participation in a living, eternally present reality into the river. You could say it this way, the invitation is participation. The river's here, it's available. Wade in and swim. Risk getting in the eternal current. And so this is what Jesus' whole mission has been, of, of showing us what the river of God looks like when it finds and floods a human life. And now, as he's ending the Sermon on the Mount, he's ending with an invitation to swim lessons. Now, let's just have a little parable here. Once upon a time, there was a woman who decided to train for a triathlon. The problem has been that out of the three components of a triathlon, which I did need to Google, is <laughs> it's, the swimming, it's the swimming for her that's the issue. She's just not a great swimmer. So after years of struggling with her health and her self-image, she gathers the courage to drive to the local aquatic center to get some help. And the fitness staff greet her warmly as she walks into the doors. And they immediately usher her into a lecture hall. She thinks, oh, this is unexpected, unusual, but I'll go with it. And for 90 minutes, there's a U2 cover band playing who's performing with lots of delay pedal and reverb, drenched songs of emotional uh, singing about swimming. And then after that, a charismatic personal trainer gets up and gives an inspiring talk about the joy of swimming. So the woman leaves very inspired, very encouraged. She can't wait to go back next week. And over the week, she discovers this place actually has swimming small groups. <laughs> not only does she have the lecture, not only is there the U2 cover band, but she joins a small group, and once a week, they talk about what it's like to train for a triathlon. Each week, they share life updates. But the question of, like, how did running go last week, or did you get to the pool, that rarely comes up. 
they even in these groups study books on swimming. And it's not actually, she realized, so much a swimmer's group, but a book club. And over the year, she looks back and she discovers she's learned a lot about swimming. But she didn't get in shape, and actually she's worse off. Why? Because she thought she was a triathlete. She, over a period of time, got duped. She gained a mind full of great information, but no skills or practices or measured change. The knowledge never came to bear on her body. And her thoughts about swimming, for sure those changed. But the arms and the legs that would need to do the swimming remained exactly the same. And this is why Jesus is ending his sermon in this way. Because it's dangerous to engage hearing without doing, with watching without acting, with reading without living. And there's actually a whole system that often falls for this kind of danger. And it's called church. It's called the pond. It's dangerous because you end up deceiving yourself and you end up unprepared, unpracticed, maybe even unfit for real adversity. Because the promise is there are storms. You're not getting out of them. They'll come. They're bigger than you. And so the invitation here isn't to inspiration. The invitation isn't to information. The invitation is to participation. Now, if the people who ran the aquatic center in the story wanted to help the woman really get ready for the race and to, to become a swimmer in particular, they'd need to rethink the approach. They'd, they'd need to limit their input to just music and lecture and book studies. And instead, there'd need to be a personal trainer, preferably like a community that she could join, where they could learn her history and her dreams for the future, her hopes for, for being in shape, and then together could formulate a training plan. And then a couple times throughout the month, maybe the trainer and the group, let's say a swim team, the, the woman would, would then have this vision and a plan and community. She'd have course teaching, but she'd also have practice, encouragement, and challenge. So this really is the genius of Jesus here. Consider how Gary Moon, one author, puts it. He says this, consider, consider twice, there we go. Consider Jesus is actually model of disciple-making. He gathered a small band of novices around himself and simply lived with them for three years as a master of the art of living. He invited 12 novices and a few other close friends into the essence of life in the kingdom and instructed them to pass on to others what they'd learned. I love the word novices in there. It's, it's, let's go back. This, this is who he chooses. Novices, forms a group, a band, like not good swimmers, uh, poor swimmers, and invites them and shares with them over three years the art of living. Love that. Next slide continues. Apprenticeship to Christ both then and now is not learning facts about or reciting a magic phrase for the forgiveness of sins. It is the experience of theology. It is a methodology of transfusion, the process of allowing Jesus' thoughts, emotions, will, behavior, and relationship skills to become our own. If Jesus is the prototype of a new human, if he is the best way to be alive, then 
apprenticeship is to not only learn and to study him, but to, to know how to have this transfusion or another way of learning how to get into the river, to take the plunge. The invitation is participation. The invitation is to actually participate in the life of Christ. And there's no way around this. This is mystical. This is mystical. It's not about information. It's not really about inspiration. It's about participation. If we're looking for real change, we need participation. Or if I'm allowed to use another shun word, it's about formation. Once I take the plunge, once I get into the water, once I'm in this immersive experience of the kingdom, now what? Now I need to learn how to experience and trust the current and not fear it. Now I need to learn to to swim, to arrange the moments of my days so that the most possible time of my day is in the flow of what God is doing in me and through me and around me. Be in the flow. And then over time, through the divine grace of that river and my humble and imperfect willingness to not fight the river but flow in the river, change happens. We're formed. We're formed into people who naturally think and act as Jesus would. Over time, then we learn the strokes. We learn the strokes of the river. And as we come into the fall, this is, the, I think, the exciting part of church. So we get to learn the strokes together. And we want to do that with all of you this fall. To learn the strokes of being in the river. To learn the strokes of sacrificial community where it costs me something. Learn the strokes of hospitality. Learn the strokes of reading scripture and spiritual direction. The strokes of free-flowing, spirit-empowered worship plus rooted liturgy. The strokes of shared meals and shared confessions of sin. Strokes of generosity, both in our finances but also with our ears, learning to listen well. The strokes of mercy and justice for our neighbors and wine and bread. Strokes of discerning good and evil and centering prayer, listening prayer, intercessoring prayer, just starting with prayer. And silence and solitude, all of these strokes, learning together. And of course, then, none of these strokes create the river. None of these strokes push the river. My spiritual disciplines and your spiritual practices don't make things happen. Don't change God's mind about you. Spiritual disciplines and practices are just receptacles for grace. It's just about learning how to flow in the current. And by learning to flow in the current, well, then what happens? Well, we read in Ezekiel what happens to these trees. Wherever the river flows, life happens. These trees that are fruitful, strangely, oddly fruitful. If that happens to trees, then what might happen to us? And so God's newness starts crashing and flooding into a human life where things like presence over distraction Start being formed. Compassion over condemnation. Trust over control. Mercy over judgment. Humility over pride. 
blessing over cursing, generosity over hoarding, all of the beautiful ways of Jesus that we've been reading about in the Sermon on the Mount. Learning the strokes of the kingdom together. One of the people we've quoted many times over this sermon series as a hero of mine, we'll probably keep quoting, is Dallas Willard. And Dallas talks about how change happens, how real, genuine change happens, and uh, he has this acronym called VIM. Uh, VIM. Let's go to the next slide. And, and so Dallas said, if we want genuine change, we're going to need a little bit of VIM. And by that he, he meant the first word was vision. We have to come believe, to believe that a particular change is possible and preferable. But, Dallas said, desire or even vision or imagination for change isn't enough to produce the change. If it were, it would be easy to be fit and punctual and debt-free. If that's all it took, if I just had to imagine it, oh, wouldn't that be nice? But at some point, Willard says, we have to decide, we have to intend, actually to get in shape, be in time, and live within our means. But now, having desired and intended, decided to change, we need practices. We need means that will get us to the new place, like a diet and exercise plan or an alarm clock that actually works. And any attempt to affect change that ignores these three phases, Dallas says, it just won't lead to change. You need vision, you need intention, and you need some means which is really just another way of saying what Jesus is saying here at the end of chapter 7. We need a vision of the river. And we need the intention to plunge in, to go in. And we need the means, the practices, the strokes to learn how to swim. In regards to vision, this is something that often we need to contend for. And one of my favorite passages which I think I've shared before, but this maybe has been my favorite little part of Scripture all year, this last year, and it's this from Psalm 46. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And I, this, this uh, comes into my mind and heart uh, many times in a day. And some days, it's just there is. I, ha- I find myself it with, with my own deep skepticism, my own quiet agnosticism about the reality of the river, I I feel like I have to contend that there is, in fact, a river. God is real. And there are days where that's, it's just, it's all about that. There is. There is a river. There is available life and power and healing and joy. The river is at hand. A couple weeks ago on Story Sunday, uh, we shared stories as a community of what God's been doing. And even though I wasn't here, I got to listen in to the recording. And thank you to all of you who shared. And as I was listening to the recording, I thought, the river's moving, people. The river's flowing. There's just so much gratitude and encouragement to hear the ways that people are actively trusting God and, and the outcome of that in their life. The river is flowing. It's beautiful. Richard Rohr, 
says this about the river. I believe that faith might be precisely that ability to trust the big river of God's providential love, which is to trust the visible embodiment, the sun, the flow, the Holy Spirit, and the source itself, the Father. This is a divine process that we don't have to change, coerce, or improve. We just need to allow it and enjoy it. It takes immense confidence, especially when we're hurting. Usually I can feel myself get panicky. Then I want to quickly make things right. I lose my ability to be present, and I go up into my head and start obsessing. This sounds to me like the season of fall. I hear a lot of iCal in there. Soon I tend to be overly focused in my head to such a point that I don't really feel or experience things in my heart and body. I'm oriented toward goals and making things happen, trying to push or even create my own river. Faith does not need to push the river precisely because it is able to trust that there is a river. The river is flowing. We are already in it. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The last part is also important. The whole point of the river is gladness for the city. Gladness for the city. A few sections of scripture capture, I think, this image of the river and the invitation to it uh, better than Eugene Peterson's translation of Matthew 11. I have this as our invitation this morning to consider together. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So good questions to consider as we come into the fall. Those of us who are tired, maybe burnt out of religion. Maybe, quite frankly, our vision is just tired of the pond. Maybe we feel like we've just been loaded down with bricks and all kinds of weights. It's good to hear the words of Jesus, his intention, I won't lay anything heavy upon you. The outcome of the flow of this river is lightness and freedom. So as we come into the fall, what I'm most excited about, I'm excited about that little postcard there with all the things that are happening in the life of this church. I'm also excited about all the things that don't make it on that postcard. I'm excited about all that stuff, but I'm also even more excited about the potential of all of that plus river. All of that plus, uh, to a greater degree, in a greater depth, the life and the power and the flow of the kingdom in and through all of that. So the invitation we just heard is to learn the unforced rhythms of grace, to learn the strokes, to, to learn how to swim and to take the plunge together. I was reminded this week, years and years and years ago, when our kids were first starting swim lessons, that Amy let me know that she had signed up our oldest for swim lessons, and she said, Your swim lessons are at whatever, 2 p.m., and I'm going to need you to take them to a swim lesson. I remember kind of thinking, well, it's 
kind of in the middle of the day, I am working, but I'm a pastor and I only work one day a week and it's half day at that, so sure, I've, I'm, I've got plenty of time to... But I thought, you know, it's, it's actually not going to be that bad because I remember at Hillcrest Pool, by the kids section, there's this little parent viewing area where there's a whole bunch of chairs. I've seen parents there. Actually, this is not going to be all that bad. I'll probably just swing by JJ Bean, get an Americano. If it's a good day, maybe a cheddar jalapeno muffin, and I'll just sit in the chair, watch the swim lessons, no problem. So that was the plan. Got to the pool, and my, uh, my little pal, Elijah, asked him if I could tell all this story, gave me the thumbs up. Uh, he was not having it, not having the lessons, not having anything to do with the water. Absolute stiff legs, trying to come out of the dressing room. Finally got him to the edge I thought, if he meets the instructor, that'll help. No, that doesn't help. Not going in the water. So I try all of my parental tricks. Buddy, hot chocolate after, after swim lessons. <laughs> Little whipped cream on top. What do you think? If you get in the water, I'll get you hot chocolate. All kinds of things. Uh, bribing, trying to get him in the water. Lesson ended. No water for Elijah. The instructor said to me, uh, you know what, next time you bring your swim trunks. If there was a word for uh, me and swim trunks that I would pick or anyone else would pick, that word is not comfortable. <laughs> so, but okay, I'll bring my swim trunks. Got there and... Um, stood awkwardly on the edge of the pool, hoping that my presence there would cause Elijah to finally get in the water, and it did not. The instructor said, you're actually going to have to get in the pool. And so I came down the ramp, and because of Hillcrest, it has a, a lowering and, and a lifting uh, pool floor in that section, it meant there was very little water uh, in that area of the pool, which meant the water came just over my knees. And so there I am, me and seven other five-year-olds, standing <laughs> mostly unsubmerged in my full glory, facing the parents who are drinking their coffee and eating their muffins as I just stand there. And she says, well, the first thing we're going to do is a game called Chop Chop Timber, where everyone stands on the edge of the pool, and she comes and does a chopping motion, and you fall into the water. So everybody, okay, so I go out, I'm in the lesson, and she comes to my legs, and I realize she's actually chopping me, and so, mm, fall into the river. Now we're, now we're swimming in the river, and we're holding floaties, and, and she says, we're going to practice putting our face in the water and blowing bubbles. And so everyone's going around the circle, and it comes to me, and she gives me the look like, yeah, you. And so, okay, I look up, and I swear I saw one of the ladies smirking at me. She was just, just laughing then. And so this is how the lesson went. Turns out, we often need someone in the water with us. Next week... Elijah's in lessons. The week after that, I'm in the hot tub. <laughs> Nowhere near the lesson. And it's easy for me to look at that five-year-old boy with his little boy fears of lessons and water and swimming. It's easy to just kind of look at all that fear and go, come on, dude. Just get in. 
Trust the water. It's going to be okay. Easy to do that as an adult. Until I realized that I've got all kinds of fears myself. Last November, Amy and I went to a pastor's conference together, which at best are hard times. And that has nothing to do with the people there or the content. It has everything to do with me. I just don't really like being around pastors. I, it's just a weird thing as a pastor to say. I don't really, I don't enjoy it. And uh, I was having a hard time. I was, I was, uh, it's the middle of November, which is typically for me, some of us I know as well, is a low month. Uh, emotionally, the, the in, interior weather is fairly dark. So it was already dark going in. And as the conference days just kind of rolled, I realized something going in me. And that was, and I, I think this, it, it doesn't matter what field you're in. You know this if you go to conferences. But everyone on the platform is just crushing it. Everyone has success stories. Everyone, it just seemed is like, I don't know, bulletproof. And so I full-on fell into a comparison trap. And I had thoughts like, why don't I ever get invited to speak at these things? Why am I not up there? <laughs> decent, decent talk, but uh, think of a few improvements. <laughs> and as those seeds of comparison were sown, greater discouragement came in. And I distinctly remember standing in the bathroom of our hotel room, and I was shaving. And I thought, it's just like a light bulb went off. The reason I don't, I'm not invited to do that, and I'm not entrusted with these kinds of ministries, the, the reason is God doesn't trust me. And I said, oh, I had thoughts, Lance, if people knew how you're like half believer and half skeptic, if, if anyone had any idea of your ongoing struggles and flaws, I thought, yeah, that's it. That's, I'm, God doesn't trust me. That's right. I can't be trusted. Later that night, dark and stormy and broody and just waiting for it to be over, came to the final session, and there's this Scottish preacher, Bill, he gave us, I'm giving you the accent so you can imagine it. <laughs> he preached out of Ezekiel 47 about the river. That's all I'm going to do. He <laughs> preached about the river and he, um, it brilliant, brilliant message. And he asked two questions. I wrote them down. He says, to what depth have you entered the river? And he says, are you willing to be out of your depth? And I knew in that moment that is exactly the edge for me. I long, I really want to be in the river flowing uh, enthusiastically and adventurously and interactively with God. I want to go, except I just want my feet touching the whole time. <laughs> I, I want to control the river, actually. Schedule it if I could. And yet the invitation is to go to the deeps where my toes cannot touch, where I'm out of control, and instead where I'm carried by the river, where I am led. And at that point, all kinds of fear just came crashing in. I wanted to give myself to the river. I did not want to give myself to the river. I felt the Spirit tugging me to surrender to God, 
And I did sort of, don't know, maybe want to. So afraid. If I give myself to the river, where will this take me? So there's a call to respond. Come to the river. And I said something very weird and odd to Amy. I said, I leaned over and I said, I I cannot entrust my soul to any of these men. I want Esther to pray for me. And Amy, of course, knew Esther, who's from Williams Lake. And she said, okay, go find Esther. And so I stood up, 15 feet away, there's Esther. I go to Esther, I said, with tears. I said, Esther, I, I want to respond. I want to flow in the river, but I also want my te- feet to always be touching. And I'm afraid to relinquish control. She said, let's pray. She put her hands on me. We had a moment of silence, and she said this to me. She said, I don't know if this means anything to you. It's kind of weird, but I feel very strongly that the Lord wants you to know that he trusts you. Which cracked me open. <laughs> and, and she says, actually, no, that is really strong. Uh, actually, that you're trustworthy. Oh, man. To be met, to find out that going into the river met, meant being met by love and kindness and being known, I did not expect that. <laughs> I've, I thought going into the river would mean something else. So it surprised me that I'd be met with that kind of knowing. And she went on to share a couple other images, which were so up my alley. They're playful and poetic, and I'm not telling you them. <laughs> but I wrote them in my journal, and they were, they were, they were so for me. Here's, here's the thing. The invitation is to participation. And as soon as that happens, we're met with fear. I shared, you, I shared with you my kinds of fear. You have your own kinds of fear, no doubt, about what it means to actually put the full weight of your life into the river, to risk drowning. But the thing is, when, when I went to Esther, this was a woman who flows. This is a woman who was standing in the river with me. And because she was flowing and listening to God, she was able to minister the river into my soul. And the beauty is then when we get to learn how to practice those strokes, how to do that with one another. So the invitation is participation for the river to flow into your fall, into your places where you're stuck. And you're afraid. And let that perfect love drive out fear. I'm wondering if the band can come. Can we just do part of that chorus? You're never going to let me down. Just a little bit here. Let's just do that as we come to the communion table. Uh, Just to affirm that, that God won't let us down. That we can trust and put our full weight and plunge and take some risks in the river. As they're coming, let's... Let's have a prayer and uh, have that song. Thank you for the announcement that the river is here, that it's available, that it's at hand, and that, Jesus, you've been showing us what it looks like to be in the river. That's on offer. I'd like to say yes this morning and ask, well, just to say yes to all the things that water does to softening, to dislodging, to cleansing,
quenching, delighting, giving life, and moving, and whatever else you want to do in and through us this fall. Just say yes to your river. The sense this morning is as praying for us, asking God if there's an invitation for anyone this morning, and uh, the line, unforced rhythms of grace, stuck out. The sense that God wants to give grace to those of us who, in whatever way we'd say, we've been forcing it. There's grace for those of us who feel like we've been just forcing it this morning. So let's, as we come to the table, the table's open.